We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And by Michael Fahey. Great to be back, Gavin. Tonight we'll be discussing the Taipei District Prosecutor's Office indicting Shinzu City Mayor Anne Gao on charges of corruption, the Constitutional Court ruling that a regulation governing how appeals of certain criminal cases are allotted to Supreme Court judges does not violate the Constitution, Deputy Economics Minister C.C. Chen touting the success of the Thai administration's new southbound policy, the Cabinet signing off a record-high six-year budget for the preservation of Taiwan's cultural heritage, and the Presidential Office announcing the selection of 15 groups and individuals who will now be spending the night at the presidential building. But we'll begin with Vice President Lai Ching-de arriving back here in Taiwan at 4.45am today after attending the inauguration of Paraguay's President Santiago Pena and making what are being described as a couple of low-key stopovers in the United States. Lai's adventure began with a stopover in New York City where he was greeted on his arrival at John F. Kennedy Airport by Ingrid Larson, the Managing Director of the American Institute in Taiwan's Washington office and also Taiwan's top envoy to the US, Xiaobi Kim. Lai met with members of the overseas Taiwanese community there and also held talks with Taiwanese startup founders based in the city. He next flew to Ascension for the inauguration itself. And while there, he rubbed shoulders with the likes of Spain's king, the presidents of Chile, Argentina and Brazil, and also the US Interior Secretary. Lai said that he introduced himself to them as Vice President of the Republic of China, Taiwan, but he refused to reveal what was said during conversations with those heads of state and leading government officials. Now, Lai was forced to dismiss speculation that his reception during his US stopover in New York was muted and instead insisted that it was handled in a steady and responsible manner. That statement came amid media reports here in Taiwan that he received a downgraded reception in the US this time as he failed to meet with any Biden administration officials, which reports claimed is in contrast to previous stopovers by Taiwan's president or vice president. Lai also claimed that such reports are geared towards swaying next year's elections. And according to Lai, he didn't plan to meet with US government officials because of his tight schedule. And reports concerning a downgraded reception are aimed at sowing divisions between Taiwan and America and creating misconceptions. So, Brian, there we go. Busy man, busy man. Yeah, that's right. And so it's always the case that presidential candidates visit the U.S. before elections to meet with U.S. government officials oftentimes, but also to fundraise. And so this is the case with Lai this time. Uh, Koenja, the Taipei mayor and the TPP candidate, has already done this. And Hoyoi, the KMT candidate, says that he will do this this fall. And so that's what happened. But then particularly there was a concern about responses from China. China did announce military exercises that took place from Saturday to Monday, so three days of exercises announced as Lai was heading off. And so there was the discussion of whether, uh, for example, there would be a reaction from China to Lai visiting the U.S. in these stopovers. And it did occur. But the uh, view oftentimes is that both the U.S., Taiwan, and China, let's say the three uh, different countries were involved there, did not really want this to be too high profile because of the potential for uh, creating friction before the election. In terms of China, perhaps there's the fear that if there's too strong a response, this could actually aid the DPP, or it could perhaps uh, not help with regards to talks with the U.S. or uh, the kind of current state of play with regards to international politics. So, Michael, low-key with the two words there. The visit was certainly low-key, um, but it was preceded by a fairly interesting interview with uh, Bloomberg, 
where uh, Lai basically disavowed any plans for pursuing formal independence. I think it was designed to assure the U.S. business community and U.S. government that uh, he's not some wild-eyed Taiwanese independence <laughs> radical. And I, I think he was pretty successful in doing that for at least those who were open to listening to what he has to say. Um, he, it, it does remind me very much of what Chen Shui-bian did before, right before when, when he was running for office uh, back in uh, 1999, 2000, where uh, he moved away from pro more, more direct pro-independence views and took a more moderate position. Yeah, that's right. And so that did occur this time as well. I mean, Lai did make comments. Uh, these were primarily closed-door meetings, uh, banquets, and uh, talks, and so forth. But he did promise to draw a line between democracy and authoritarianism and stand up for democracy, but not really outlining any specific moves. And so uh, in terms of, let's say, Taiwanese independence or the position on Taiwan's status in the world. And so moderation, I think, was key here. And that's the image that Lai really wanted to project this time. But he didn't seem to meet anyone, Brian, or so the naysayers say. Yeah, that's right. And so then the claim, uh, particularly from the Pam Blue camp, is that perhaps this was downgraded, that Lai did not have a warm reception from the U.S. And so I think this is part of the broader kind of U.S. skepticism that the Pam Blue camp has sometimes embraced in this election cycle, uh, saying then that, for example, Lai is maybe not so liked in Washington because of his stances. Uh, Eric Chu, for example, did claim during the same period that Lai has supported Taiwanese independence every day of his life, which I kind of wonder about because, uh, you know, sometimes one is a baby and a child in which one doesn't have clear views on this. But uh, that figure of speech aside, that was uh, responded to them with a Bloomberg interview in which Lai did uh, stress that he is not going to make any moves on Taiwan's independence. And so there was that kind of back and forth. And that's the traditional line attack that the KMT has, of course, embraced regarding uh, the DPP. He, he did make a pretty strong statement that uh, Taiwan doesn't need to declare, declare independence because it's already an independent and sovereign country, which whose formal name in the Constitution is the Republic of China and whom President Tsai, for purposes of unity, refers to as the Republic of China, parentheses, Taiwan. There's also an aircraft carrier off the coast, the east coast of Taiwan, or a whole aircraft carrier group, which is something that we're seeing each time uh, Taiwanese high officials visit uh, the U.S. And one other thing he said that I thought was really kind of interesting, it's, it's slowly begin to dawn on me that while the KMT often sees Singapore as a model for Taiwan, the DBP has rather consistently over recent years, for better or for worse, seems to see the Silicon Valley as a model for Taiwan. And that was something that uh, that Lai really emphasized in his speech in San Francisco. Because Michael, I believe he said something along the lines of, Taiwan's science parks are closer to the Silicon Valley than Los Angeles or Seattle. He did. It's kind of interesting because it, the Silicon Valley is very controversial in the United States. It's certainly created great wealth, but it's also brought great social problems. But it seems for the DPP that they're kind of back in the mid-two-aughts, believing that Silicon Valley is just a fount of innovation, wealth, and making the world a better place, something he mentioned there. So I'm not sure how well that vision fits Taiwan either, but it is an interesting contrast to the KMT one. 
Yeah, that's right. And so there is this back and forth about what Taiwan's future for economic development should be. But I think particularly when visiting the U.S., this kind of comes up with regards to meetings with the overseas Taiwanese community and is reported on domestically, but perhaps less so in terms of what the world has it focused on, which is, of course, the kind of cross-strait issue and so forth. And so I think the it is interesting because domestic politics is, of course, a major part of any election, but then usually the international kind of commentary will not discuss this as much. And of course, Brian, there were protests and not protests groups of Taiwanese cheering Lai Ching-de when he was in America. But of course, there was a rather large anti-protest, anti-Lai protest in San Francisco. Yeah. And then, of course, there was a recording, supposed recording of <laughs> Kerwin Je saying that the DPP paid people to do this in America. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's always the pattern, actually. Usually when there is a pan-green candidate that comes to uh, the U.S. in various places, the local overseas Taiwanese community will mobilize to try and support them in the expectation that there will be counter-protests from usually Chinese, uh, local Chinese community uh, representatives and so forth. And so that does happen, and this pattern kind of repeats itself. And to be honest, that also occurs with the pan-blue camp, though maybe they don't see such protests against them, the local pan-blue diaspora then will mobilize in support of their candidate. And so this happened in both places in the two stopover locations. Uh, but there were, of course, Chinese protesters, but there are also some Chinese protesters in support of Lai, with an anti-war framing, saying that they don't support China annexing Taiwan and that this is important to stand up for. And so that did also occur, and that it was actually focused on by some of the media coverage. And so that is more relatively rare, but it's also good to see. It's good to see that occur. And what about the mysterious recording, Brian? Yeah, and so the TPP has disavowed this. And so this is also quite interesting. I mean, Ko himself traveled to the U.S. already. Uh, I think perhaps the TPP, despite uh, balancing between uh, pan-blue and pan-green in that sense, while still being more generally pan-blue, is not wanting to be associated with this kind of U.S. skeptic discourse at present, to the extent that maybe the KMT is. And so this also takes place at a time in which there's rumors of possible alignment between Terry Go and Ko. And Go has traveled to the U.S. twice already, once around the same time frame that Ko did, and also around the same time that Lai is in the U.S. And so this is interesting. Overall, it really was a low-key visit. And and it seems to me that politically that makes a lot of sense for Lai. He's has a reasonable lead in the polls at the moment. Uh, and so his main focus should be on not making any mistakes and drawing a sharp contrast between his pro-U.S., pro-democracy line and the KMT's uh, preference for closer relations with China. Of course, Ma Wang could also argue the fact that he doesn't actually need to go to America to meet these politicians because they all come here and because he's vice president, he's going to meet them anyway. The flow of visitors does seem to have slowed down recently. Mm. Yeah, it could be two elections, but I'm always amused when a uh, government official then travels to the U.S. and then has online calls with U.S. politicians in which they are in the same country. So that also occurs. Mm, taxpayers' money comes to mind there. But never mind, we move on. Anyway, the Taipei District Prosecutor's Office this week indicted Taiwan People's Party Shinzu City Mayor and Gao on charges of making fraudulent payroll deductions and misusing public funds. The announcement of the indictment follows an eight-month investigation into the case. And prosecutors say that Gao was formally charged with violating the Anti-Corruption Act and falsifying documents between February and December of 2020 when she served as a legislature at large. Gao allegedly misused more than 400 
160,000 NT of public funds through the fraudulent payroll deductions. And she was listed as a suspect in the case in December of last year after prosecutors raided her offices and summoned her for questioning for the first time. Now, two of her legislative office directors and two of her aides have also been charged with corruption, that for allowing Gao's inst- or following Gao's instructions rather regarding the payroll deductions. Now, Gao has repeatedly denied the allegations and speaking to reporters after the indictment came down, she said the prosecutors failed to take all factors into consideration and she went on to describe the indictment as being rather careless and she claimed that it was politically motivated. And a spokesperson for the TPP says Gao has the full support of the party and it firmly believes she will be cleared of any wrongdoing. So, Brian, of course... And Gao, big star for the Taiwan People's Party, became Shinzu mayor in an election where she wasn't even expected to win. That's right. So it's a surprise win. And that is a big uh, win for a party that is a third party and was seeking local representation. And so at a time in which the uh, their main profile, a political figure, uh, Ko Enjo, is stepping out of his position as Taipei mayor because of the end of his second term, then they had another mayor. And so particularly, Anne Gao was quite good in that role. And uh, particularly, Gao is an interesting person because she entered the party through her connection to Terry Go. There are rumors now they might have become more distant. And so this was all seen as part of Ko's alignment with Go because she was historically a close associate of his. Uh, so this is also interesting, too, because this kind of scandal regarding corruption, uh, regarding specifically the uh, accusation of embezzling fees meant to subsidize assistance is quite a recurring theme. It comes up a lot with regards to city council or legislator and now at mayor. And so, um, you know, this occurred when Gao was legislator, of course, but it's somewhat surprising, I mean, that, uh, for example, just uh, this scandal would implicate her at such a delicate period in her career and that came up during the last election cycle did not prevent her from winning. She also had a, a plagiarism scandal allegations against her during the same period. Uh, but then it's come up for elections. And so this is why the TPP is leaning to this narrative then that this is politically motivated. And so what's also interesting is that the KMT, uh, Eric Chu, the chair, and their presidential candidate, Hoyo, we've also defended Gao, actually, at a time in which is questioned if the two parties would seek alignment because of the potential of a split vote in the presidential election. I've read the indictment against Ann Gao, and I have to say that it seemed like a pretty careful indictment that maybe had a few things in it that were designed to... Uh, sway the, the the judge as you would you would expect. Uh, her case is a little bit different than some of the other uh, embezzlement of um, of of monies for assistance, which, as Brian pointed out, is is really really common. Uh, there there's just dozens of these cases. It's it's kind of unbelievable that anyone would be messing around <laughs> with them in this day and age. Uh, but they people continue to do so. And in her case, it's a little bit different because what usually happens is is that they hire fake people on the payroll who don't actually do any work, and then they embezzle the salaries. What the prosecutors are saying that she did was a little bit more sophisticated in that uh, they left the salaries alone and they really had assistants who worked. But they apparently may have uh, charged for overtime, which didn't actually get worked. Uh, And then the assistants donated their overtime (laughs) pay back into a slush fund that she then used for personal expenses. I have to say it doesn't look that great. It's really hard to understand. Her defense is that they really worked the overtime that they voluntarily donated uh, because they are politically committed. Uh, And she suggested on Zhao Shao Kong's show last night that she 
tried to repay the funds or may have repaid the personal expenses, but it wasn't clear if that actually happened or not. Yeah, it is actually kind of interesting in that respect, because there was a similar case that came up a while ago with Lingying Meng, the independent, uh, Pan Green independent former MPP, uh, of also docking fees from assistance, but that was accused of being punishment. And with Gao, her defense is that this is voluntary. And so in that previous case, it was that, you know, punishing assistance for doing wrong things. In this case, claiming that, well, they were all voluntarily donating to my personal expenses. And then she also did come under scrutiny for that. One of the people that she's accused of then using the funds for was her boyfriend or parent boyfriend. And he also uh, is tied to the Yongling Foundation. Terry Goh's foundation uh, works there and has a high salary. And so the question is, why would you put yourself in this political risk for just around 25000 or so per month? And this actually occurs at a time in which, for example, uh, assistants in the Kaohsiung City Council are seeking to unionize because they're calling attention to their poor working conditions and overtime and lack of salaries, actually, just that they're actually not being paid very well. And usually it's young people that are kind of in this position, uh, often because of youthful enthusiasm for politics and whether of any camp, then they all feel kind of exploited. And so it is actually interesting how this points to these labor conditions at a time in which there are attempts to unionize. But then it is it is a question like, why why get yourself into this politically when it is risky? And this, this scandal just comes up over and over again. And so why would someone do that? I, I also don't know sometimes. I, I did notice that her, her more high-ranking assistants had, by Taiwan standards, pretty reasonable salaries. I think two of them were making about 60000 NT a month, and another was making 70000 mm-hmm. The boyfriend is really interesting, because the prosecutors found that he did actually provide services to uh, her, her office. Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently, he was working at not only Honghai, mm-hmm. but also the Yongning Foundation, and there are allegations that he was making as much as six million NT uh, a year. And not only that, I thought the most interesting part of the corruption angle was that the Yongning Foundation, this is uh, Terry Goh's uh, charitable foundation, was actually paying Ann Gao 100,000 NT a month for her to defray her legislative uh, expenses on top of this money that was coming out of the slush fund. So we can see that she has been, she worked for Honghai before, she's being subsidized for 100,000 NT a month from them. Uh, she's clearly has a very, very close association to Terry Go. And then she's got a pill for 460,000 NT. It boggles the mind. <laughs> <laughs> the prosecutors also mentioned that she has 10 million NT in savings in her bank accounts and couldn't understand why she would do this. Peer pressure. Well, <laughs> everybody does it. So, uh, and maybe maybe most people aren't getting caught, but there's just a steady drumbeat of these cases. It's it's mm. really hard for me to understand. And the the sentences are severe. I mean, this this councilwoman down in Jiayi just got sentenced to ten years. Now it'll probably be reduced, and she built more money. Uh, but another guy recently t- was convicted of embezzling just fifty thousand NT, and he got three years. Uh, mm. I, he's definitely going to do jail time, even if it will get reduced later. Uh, The immediate legal consequence of this that possibly segues over into the political side of it is that I think that this case will take about a year to a year and a half to try at the first instance. If she's found guilty, she's suspended from office. 
Uh, so that is the question then, if she is removed from office, and in which case there would be her deputy would take office, but if uh, there's you know the second instance or third instance rulings, then she could potentially be removed. And the question is, would there be a by-election? And so that would be a blow against potentially the TPP. Uh, but it's also kind of interesting, too, because the question is, will it affect the next set of elections at a time in which Ko is running for president? And Ko did seem to have some concerns regarding this during the last round of elections, uh, very briefly. But then it does seem like partisanship has set in, and in the cases in which there are corrupt allegations against Pam Blue politicians, the Pam Blue camp has usually dug its heels in. And so now it is to be expected the party will defend her and allege this is the DPP going after political opponents. It seems to me that Kuz doesn't need to be too worried about this because people will forget about it in a month or so and mm-hmm. the, the result of the first instance trial will not come out until after the presidential election. I don't think anybody thinks that Kuz is personally corrupt, but it does raise questions about who he's associating with and what is the nature of the Taiwan People's Party? Uh, is it just another one-man party like the Taiwan Solidarity Union led by Li Donghui and uh, the People's First Party led by Song Chuyu, or is it something more substantial that'll be a presence in Taiwan politics long-term? So far, it looks to me like a one-pony show. Yeah. And Brian, do you think the DPP will be trying to make great hay of this and make sure people don't forget about it in the run-up to the election? Yeah, that's right, because it's also interesting because co-associates are now leaning into the accusation that the DPP is linked to gangsters and so forth. I mean, for example, Holger Chen, the streamer and political commentator the uh, who owns a gym, I mean, now alleging that the DPP is behind the hit on him that occurred uh, several years ago. And so those were uh, that shooting was conducted by members of the Bamboo Union gang, which is historically more pronification. And so why is the accusation going against the DPP at this time? And then one can also look at, for example, Ko's associate with the Miaoli uh, County magistrate, who uh, is accused of gang-related killings in the past or having been involved in them. And so it does raise these questions about the people that Ko is associating himself with, even if it may not actually impact his uh, personal kind of brand in that sense. And so if his party does actually try to lean into this narrative of the DPP being corrupt and so forth, I mean, the DPP can always turn around and point to these cases and say, well, I mean, who are you to criticize us? And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're going to continue in the legal frame now as the Constitutional Court this Monday ruled that a regulation governing how appeals of certain criminal cases are allotted to Supreme Court judges does not violate the Constitution. Now, the court ruling was made in response to a request from an interpretation filed by 52 individuals, 35 of whom are death row inmates. Now, the request for the interpretation centres on a clause in the Supreme Court's case allotment regulations, and that clause stipulates serious criminal cases appealed to the court after being sent back to lower courts at least twice must be heard by the same Supreme Court judge who heard them previously unless that judge has already left said court. Now the clause is aimed at ensuring that a presiding judge is already familiar with the details of the case to ensure that appeals cases do not drag on for lengthy periods of time. So, and we've got Michael in the studio today because I didn't understand anything I just said so Michael's going to explain it in layman's English. Well, I'll try my best. <laughs> it, it was a pretty obscure point of uh, of law. Um, so basically what happens in a serious uh, case, not just death penalty cases, but death penalty cases are a real good example. Uh, first, you have a, a, a trial at the district court, and let's say the, um, the, the accused is convicted. Then he appeals to the high court, and they basically do a do-over there. 
if he loses there again, he goes to the Supreme Court. Uh, and the Supreme Court only looks at questions of law. It doesn't look at questions of fact, although sometimes it will say that uh, the facts haven't been investigated thoroughly. In that case, it will remand it back to the high court, which will do another trial on those issues. And there's very likely to be uh, another appeal. And if there are two of these retrials at the, at the high court level uh, and it keeps bouncing back up to the Supreme Court, they keep the same judge at the Supreme Court for reasons of administrative efficiency and also because there aren't that many judges on the Supreme Court. So if they're always recusing, they might run out of judges. I mean, some of these cases have like 10 retrials. So it, it is a issue of administrative efficiency. The point on the other side seems to be that you 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 in order to carry out justice, you want a fresh pair of eyes on the case each time which kind of makes sense, but not really to me in this context, because they're not looking at the facts. They're just looking at questions of law. So I, I think that the Constitutional Court was right in upholding this rule. Uh, what's interesting about it is it would have led to retrials for many of these death penalty offenders. And now the question is, will executions proceed? The Ministry of Justice says no, because they have other constitutional appeals underway. The one that I'm aware of is that they have a constitutional appeal that goes directly to the question of whether or not the death penalty is constitutional. Now, the Constitutional Court has thousands, actually, since it came into effect a couple years ago, it's it's had 5,000 cases filed. It has 700 cases pending now. 99% of those cases are rejected, but it takes time to go through with them. So I suspect that this will delay things and no executions will occur until after the next presidential election. Yeah, I mean, that uh, seems outright to me. I mean, I'm not a legal expert. And it was actually kind of confusing in terms of the fact that this was a front page news article. And uh, the, the link between the law and the uh, capital punishment cases was not always uh, illustrated very detailed in, in media reporting. Uh, but yeah, I think the concern from death penalty advocates is this: uh, the retrials that there will be the same rulings. Uh, what now for the thirty-five uh, death row inmates? Uh, I think it's also interesting because it does tie back to this broader discourse around judges in, in Taiwan at a time in which there is a shift towards a kind of uh, the lay judge system and, and so forth. Uh, but you know, just broader perceptions of judges, including at the Supreme Court level, of for example, making outmoded rulings based on conservative social values and so forth. And so, I think the general public at large might not pay attention to that. It is mostly rulings on on matters of law and rather than individual fact. Uh, and there has been the call for a lot of these cases to be you know, thrown out or for pardons to be issued because of evidence has disappeared or gone missing or uh, judgments are made during the authoritarian period and so forth. And so there's that. Uh, but I think that it's uh, a question. I mean, there's always the accusation against the uh, president that they will potentially carry out executions to shore up public opinion before an election. And so, for example, Hoyoi, the KMT presidential candidate, has stated that he will carry out executions during uh, his presidency if, if he is elected, because that is something that the public approves of. And poll after poll shows the public is in support of capital punishment. And Michael, apparently the court also did all those other things that you very nicely explained. Apparently they've given lawmakers two years to amend existing recusal laws, which are contained in the Code of Criminal Procedure, apparently. They did. Uh, the What they're saying there is that... Uh, Normally, a judge, it, what it says clearly in the law that a judge has to recuse himself or herself if they have uh, a conflict of interest. But 
this business of whether or not a judge has to recuse him or herself if they've already been involved in the case isn't clearly stated in the law. So they're saying that if you want to do this, you need to put it into the law. You shouldn't just be using administrative regulations. I, I would say in general that two two kind of broader points about this. One is is that from the from the point of view of the death penalty advocates, uh, it's often strategically better in Taiwan to try to win cases on these obscure procedural points. You have a better chance of winning than going for a frontal assault on the substantive uh, constitutionality of the death penalty. So that's why they were so invested in this in this case. Uh, the second point is that the constitutional court, as opposed to the Supreme Court, because they're different, is really pretty liberal. This is the court that gave us same-sex marriage. It's hard to say what they're going to do with the death penalty case. It's going to be a tough call for them, I think. Mm. And moving in a completely different direction now, Deputy Economics Minister C.C. Chen was busy this week touting the success of the government's new southbound policy. Now, speaking at a Taiwan-Asian-India partnership forum in Taipei, Chen said that Taiwan's investments in the countries under the new southbound policy have surpassed investments in China in the first half of this year. And according to Chen, investments in the 18 countries under the policy in the January to June period totaled 2.126 billion US dollars, and that was greater than the 1.9 billion US dollars invested in China. Chen also told delegates at the forum that the policy is now echoing an international trend by reducing economic dependence on a single market and is also reinforcing economic ties with Asian member states. So Brian, of course, there was lots of naysayers about the new southbound policy when it came into effect in 2016, but do you think finally it's paying off and why is it paying off? Well, I mean, I think that's an open question, but either way, before elections, the Tsai administration will want to tout this as an accomplishment of the past eight years, because there is a lot of talk of the new Southland policy, and it's not exactly a new effort by Taiwan either to uh, kind of de-risk uh, having so much investment in China, over-dependency on one economy and one economy that is also threatening you militarily. And so this has been something the Tsai administration has tried to push for. Uh, and it also does take place at an interesting time in which, for example, the KMT has uh, come back with these calls for building economic ties with China as existed during the Ma administration and kind of leveraging on this nostalgia for a period in which that occurred. And so I think particularly this will be used as ammunition for the next round of elections, the Tsai administration and the DPP defending this approach of trying to reduce dependency on China and build ties with Southeast Asian countries, while the KMT will insist the opposite, that it was better to have ties with China and that this will actually maintain stability. And this is the approach that will actually, uh, for example, maintain peace. Because there is a narrative then, I think, from the Pan Blue Camp that if you do reduce trade with China, then China will actually go after you more militarily. And this actually increases the risk in the region. And so I think this kind of contention will continue. The new southbound policy is yet another example of uh, what a protege of Li Donghui, <laughs> Tsai Ing-wen, is. Because there was a new southbound uh, policy during the 1990s as well, which wasn't particularly successful, but it wasn't a total failure either. It was the first wave of Taiwanese investment in Vietnam. I think now the geopolitical situation is more favorable. Uh, 
there's a lot of potential in India and the other countries. Vietnam has been booming for a long time. Taiwanese businesses are moving out of China, not just because of the geopolitical situation, but simply because expenses and costs are much higher. And now they have pesky labor regulations in China, which is why they left Taiwan in the first place. Uh, so so they, 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 there is interest in moving there. It's also a very complex issue because some of the investments, for example, have gone to Singapore and gotten caught counted as new southbound investments, yet, in fact, they were then invested in New Mexico for plants to do auto parts. So it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty complex issue. The one thing to keep in mind, though, is that these numbers are, I think they said $5 billion in the first six months of this year, are completely dwarfed by the amount of returning Taiwanese investment to Taiwan. The returning Taiwanese investment program in Taiwan has supposedly attracted two trillion U.S. dollars in the last four years and created 140,000 jobs. It's just orders of magnitude different than what Taiwan is investing in in Southeast Asia. That's the big story. Yeah, but I think that doesn't play as well politically in terms of the election. So maybe there's that. I mean, this still how to success, but it's interesting. I mean, uh, particularly the narrative from the DPP is that the KMT is bucking international trends, for example, just in terms of calling for uh, increasing economic dependency on China when the world is moving away from China and moving elsewhere. So it is quite interesting with regards to that. I mean, the other substrate, I guess, of the new southbound policy is particularly the uh, political aspect of these different countries. And if you try to increase economic ties, perhaps they will be more motivated to stance on your behalf. I mean, that's unlikely with any a lot of these countries, frankly, because China is, is quite large and can be a very large and unhappy neighbor next to you. But uh, it is an attempt by the government. It's also important to see that the Taiwanese government has lots of tools to make this happen. A, a very simple example is that a lot of these big investment projects uh, have, a, have a loan component to them. And who do Taiwanese businesses borrow money from? The Taiwanese banks. And many Taiwanese banks have significant government stakes. And even if they don't have a significant government uh, stake, the Financial Supervisory Commission has enormous regulatory power over them and can encourage them to approve loans in certain investment projects and not in others. So without Taiwanese government support and banking support, uh, you're really going upstream if you're continuing to invest in China at this point. And the cabinet this week approved a record-high six-year budget for the preservation of the island's cultural heritage. Now, according to Culture Minister Shi Zhe, the cabinet has set aside a total of 15.94 billion NT from 2024 through 2029 for what is the Culture Ministry's fifth program of historical and cultural heritage maintenance and development. Now, the Ministry of Culture says there has been insufficient funds in previous years for preservation work to be carried out and many of the sites that are in need of repair. Now... The Bureau of Cultural Heritage, which oversees all this, it lists a lot of cultural heritage assets in Taiwan. And if you're interested, there's 1,036 monuments. There's 1,718 historic buildings. There's 18 commemorative bridges. There's 22 groups of buildings. There's 76 cultural landscapes. There's six historical sites. And I'll shut up and go to Michael before I continue this list. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll throw out a few more numbers, too. Um, the the uh, government noted that uh, in the past three years, there have been 627 
applications from local governments to preserve and renovate historical sites. But 447 had to be rejected for budgetary reasons. So uh, the, the increase will allow the renovation of things like the historic Chen uh, Tianlai, historic residence on Guidejie in Taipei, which is a really uh, amazing example of 1920s Baroque uh, architecture. Um, and so what you're going to see is more projects like the Huashan redevelopment uh, or, or perhaps the, 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 the Chen residence and this kind of thing all over uh, Taiwan. There are projects in Xinju and Ilan and Tainan, although cynics might suggest that since a lot of Taiwan's heritage is in the south, simply because it's older, uh, that maybe more of the money will be going there. I don't really think that's true, but I've, I've, I've heard people say that. Looking at the bigger picture, it, it, it's kind of remarkable what's happened in Taiwan over the last seven years of the Thai administration. Uh, Taiwan's GDP has increased from $534 billion in 2015 to $761 billion in 2022. Now, I'm sure that the three of us have not uh, enjoyed a great deal of that uh, uh, 42% increase in the size of Taiwan's economy, but the government's tax revenues have moved in lockstep and have also increased by 42% from uh, about $59 billion in 2015 to $84 billion in 2022. The government has a lot more money than it did a few years ago, and it's spending accordingly. It's still only about 11 or 12% of Taiwan's GDP, which is much lower than the OECD average of 22% and the 30 to 40% that you see in most European countries. So the government could be spending a lot more money. Yeah, I think so. Um, it is quite interesting because, particularly, cultural uh, heritage preservation efforts are always a substrate of local politics. Oftentimes, you know, what, for example, a local group gets the bid to do whatever. Uh, and also, I think, particularly now, there's a lot more criticisms of the DPP and the forward-looking infrastructure uh, plan, for example, reclaiming that the DPP is acting to benefit its local interests. And so, I kind of wonder if that substrate will play out regarding the cultural sector as well. Uh, I mean, sometimes the cultural establishment is accused of then propagating a certain vision of history, which often then plays into the identity split between the DPP and the KMT, but then also accusing uh, the DPP of benefiting certain cultural figures that it favors, or a certain uh, vision of kind of local history to preserve. And so well, I, a, lot of yeah. these, a lot of these old houses are owned by quite prominent families and clans mm -hmm. who may not have enormous resources now or can't agree on how to do it, mm -hmm. but they're still pretty influential locally. But by and large, though, I would say that these renovation projects are really pretty popular with the public. Uh, you have the the new um, historic building cluster behind Zhonghua Telecom on Jinhuajie, mm -hmm. which has been wildly popular. And everywhere I go in Taiwan, uh, these sites seem to be quite popular. So I'm not seeing a lot of backlash on this. Mm -hmm. I was actually in one the other week. I was in the Wong, tea, Wong Family Tea Building. It was just off Dihua Street. Do you recommend it? It's pleasant. You walk in, it's nice inside. It's yeah. tea, but it was donated to the city government, or to the government, by the Wong family. Uh, that's, that's exactly what was done with the Chen uh, family residence. Mm-hmm. 
Anyway, before we go this week, the Presidential Office on Monday announced that it selected 15 groups and individuals to spend a night at the Presidential Building. The Spend the Night at the Presidential Building campaign was introduced in 2019, but of course then came the Covid and put the kibosh on it until this year. And it's all part of the Thai administration's campaign to raise Taiwan's global visibility. Now, those selected this year include the American host and writer of a YouTube science series, a Malaysian internet celebrity, a Japanese YouTuber, a Slovakian filmmaker and a Thai YouTube chef. Now, the presidential office says the groups and individuals will be staying at the presidential building for a night from basically next month till December of this year. And the General Association of Chinese Culture, which apparently helped organise the overnight stay, says this year's event will feature 10 distinct tourism and cultural themes, including dining experiences and visits to artistic and cultural landmarks. Hopefully the landmarks that might get some money, Brian. Yeah, so I think this continues the trend of the government uh, working with YouTubers in particular to try to promote uh, itself. And oftentimes this is domestic, but in this case, this is international. And so attempts But not to... TikTok. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> though, though, I guess Instagram too, influencers trying to do the 15 second reels and, and that kind of thing as well. And YouTube is also trying to get it on the reels as well. Um, yeah, and so this continues with attempts to then reach out to international influencers. But will this be successful? I don't know. I mean, uh, your average tourist is not going to get to stay at night in the presidential office. And it is very tied to Taiwanese history and the history of the Republic of China. But is this what interests people in coming to Taiwan? I kind of am not totally sure. YouTube. This sounds to me, Michael, like the government wants to propagate Taiwan for free. Well, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, it seems to me that the idea is that actually the presidential office is a hook to get these YouTubers and influencers interested in coming to Taiwan. And the real point is that they will spend a few days in Taiwan and, mm. and presumably uh, promote it for their audiences uh, uh, back home. Um, I, I guess I'm a little uh, skeptical, like most of us, that this is the best use of the tourist dollar. Uh, and <laughs> and it does seem like uh, there is a very heavy influence on YouTube, which I'm dimly aware may have passed its peak that was about a decade ago of, of in terms of influence but uh, uh, then again you know Taiwan isn't always up on the the uh, the, the latest trends. Yeah, I kind of wonder, because I feel like oftentimes there are tourist influencers, but then it requires a very tailored kind of experience to appeal to that. And I feel like just having the kind of presidential office might not work. I mean, the attempt is to get them to come here all on the basis of that. But then, for example, like something that really worked well in Japan recently is that they're the most famous Japanese host. Um, did uh, Roland did a, a uh, skit or a p- appearance with two Taiwanese celebrities. And so that got a lot of attention. It's very... It highlights Taiwan in some way, but then there's also this kind of interchange that's happening, uh, and it's it took place in Japan, but then that got a lot of attention. I think I'm not sure sure the kind of tourist influencers it's specific enough actually to to for that to occur because I think this kind of a meeting of of Taiwanese influencers and Japanese influencers was kind of rare to happen. So I think maybe a more tailored or specific approach would actually get more traction. Yeah, because Michael, one of the one of the people coming is a Thai YouTube chef. So could they get the chef to cook for Thai Ingwen? Some nice Thai food or some fusion Thai Taiwan food. I suspect that <laughs> Thai Ingwen is a true Taiwanese who doesn't like spicy food very much. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know how well that would work. But the Thai food is certainly popular in in Taiwan, and and Thailand is is one of the countries that Taiwan is trying to boost. Uh, uh, tourism from and it, it does have a large middle class that can afford to come and travel in in Taiwan and I, I live near Yongkong Street and uh, I do see more Thai tourists 
recently. So there's there's growth there. The one thing I'm wondering about, though, is that the criticism I've heard of this program is that no one with ROC nationality need apply. Mm. Or TikTok. Or TikTok, for that matter. Oh, do they accept TikTok? That's the question we have, though, isn't it? I, I, mean, I didn't see many... anyone on the list who was from... Who, that, who... that was the winning list, though, yeah? But yeah. how many people applied on TikTok? And were they seemingly just rejected offhand? Well, if ICRT wants to file a Freedom of Information request, <laughs> I think we could probably get this <laughs> crucial information. <laughs> and that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Michael Fahey. Take care. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.